do you turn when you're desperate? When you're desperate, when you're at the end of yourself, where do you turn? Psychology calls the activities we turn to when we're feeling stressed or anxious or desperate coping mechanisms. And coping mechanisms can be broadly categorized as either active or avoidant. Active coping mechanisms usually involve an awareness of the stressor and conscious attempts to reduce stress. So you might say, hey, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm gonna go for a run because I know movement fights anxiety, physical activity helps. Um, that's a healthy response to stress and anxiety and loss and grief. Avoidant coping mechanisms, on the other hand, are characterized by ignoring or otherwise trying to avoid the problem. Um, these are unhealthy responses to stress and anxiety and loss and grief. Um, we've all been guilty of it, right? How many you are like, you're feeling anxious, stressed, overwhelmed and you binge watch hours of Netflix to shut your mind off from the problem. Or like me, you eat. You can tell that, you know, that's one of my coping mechanisms, right? I didn't get like this just because food tastes good. It's a coping mechanism when I'm feeling anxious. Uh, eating food gives my anxious body something to do. Maybe it's doom scrolling. You know, you just get on social media and you're like, somebody's got to say something good on Facebook. I'm just going to keep looking for it for hours, you know? And you never find it because Facebook is a gutter. No. Um, or maybe it's even substance abuse. That's how a lot of us, though, choose to deal with the everyday stress of living in our complicated, busy, often frustrating modern world. We turn to these coping mechanisms. But sometimes you're knocked down so hard, you're knocked down so low that the normal coping mechanisms you have, whether they're healthy or unhealthy, don't help. They can't even touch the issue. What happens when everything is stripped away, as my therapist says, what is your bedrock when you hit rock bottom? Today we're looking at a dad who was desperate and so he came to Jesus. And in this same story is a woman who was desperate and comes to Jesus. And in their desperation they find Jesus attentive, compassionate, and full of healing and hope. And I hope as we read this story today, as I share this message, I hope that you find Jesus attentive, compassionate, and full of healing and hope. Let's read in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying this, this is a direct continuation from last week. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come put your hand on her, and I believe she will live. And Jesus got up and went with them, and so did his disciples. And just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the hem or the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if I can only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. And when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and he saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead. She's only sleeping. But they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. They made fun of him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, he took the girl by the hand, and she got up. And news of this spread through all that region. I'm just going to pre-warn you guys. I've read the story many times, and I'm like, oh, this is a good encounter of Jesus. Now that I have a daughter, I read this, and I just, like, weep all through this. So I'm going to try to keep it together this morning. The religious leaders despised Jesus. They didn't like who he was uh, eating and drinking with. We talked about that last week. But this synagogue leader, he's risking his reputation here going to Jesus because Jesus is not popular. He's controversial. He doesn't care. 
when he, he hit with people was going to cost him or how it was going to affect his social standing. He didn't care what people thought anymore. When our daughter was taken away from us, I didn't want to eat. We just laid on the floor and we cried. Life felt pointless as if all the color had gone out of the universe. It felt like a living nightmare. I didn't want to do any of the things I usually loved and cared about. It was like my very capacity to care about things had been stripped away because my heart had been ripped out of my chest. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. I remember laying there and seeing one of those idiotic Instagram posts. Have you seen these? And it's like, share this post or use this sound and your heart's desire will come true in 24 hours. You seen those stupid posts? And I remember laying there and thinking, this is so dumb. I'm going to do it though because I'm so desperate. Like, what if? Like, what do I have got to lose? I've lost everything I care about. The rational part of me knows this is stupid and it's not going to work. And someone's just trying to get their sound or their post to go viral. But I remember thinking, what will it hurt? I have nothing else. I'm desperate. Maybe it will just work. When you're desperate, the ridiculous doesn't seem so absurd to you anymore. And this man, at some point, he might have been like, ooh, associating with Jesus might cost me my position in the synagogue. Now he's lost his daughter, and he's like, I don't care. All I want is her to get back up. If he can do it, I don't care. When you're desperate enough, you don't worry about what people will say or how they might judge you. You don't care. Desperate people try desperate things. And there was a second desperate person in this story. As Jesus is on his way to heal this little girl, a woman who had a bleeding condition for 12 years. And I like that Jesus, he calls her my daughter. There's two daughters in this story. Something else I've never noticed before. I had a daughter. And both these stories, though, make me wonder something. Why did Jesus wait until that little girl was dead? Why did Jesus wait 12 years for this woman? Couldn't have a lot of pain and grief have been avoided if Jesus had stopped by earlier that day before the little girl had died and healed her? Why didn't Jesus heal this woman who waited 12 years? Couldn't he have stopped by and healed her earlier than this on some trip to Jerusalem, swung by Capernaum and healed her? Losing blood meant this woman was unclean. In Jewish society, she would be denied access to the temple. She was probably weak. She may have been crawling toward Jesus. The, the passage doesn't tell us this, but it says she reached out for the hem of his robe. She may have been on the ground crawling to him because she loses so much blood that she's weak and she can't stand up. And all she can do is crawl. Couldn't this woman have been able to avoid a life of isolation and loneliness, weakness and desperation if Jesus had just swung by a few years earlier and healed her? This woman probably didn't marry. She probably certainly didn't have kids. In the first century, this was a woman's whole identity, and for 12 years, she's left desperate. Luke's account tells us that she had tried every treatment and medicine and exhausted all her money. And I'm like, Jesus, why didn't you intervene before this? Like, couldn't you have intervened before she wasted all this time and had all this suffering and all this pain? Couldn't you intervene before the parents wept over their dead child? She was literally at rock bottom, crawling on the ground, wondering what is the point of living. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you've been there for a while, and I think it's always natural to ask, where is God? Why is he making me wait? Why is he making me suffer? Why doesn't he show up sooner? Why doesn't he intervene faster? 
Uh, I know I asked all these questions. For 10 years, Darby and I tried to have children, and I kept asking these questions. We kept trying to be parents. We lost a baby. Then we got a baby who was everything to us, and she was taken away. And I asked, why is this so hard? Except I asked that with a lot more expletives in the statement. Why isn't there an easier road? Why, why, why? Now, my theology of suffering doesn't blame God for evil. I don't think he's the author of your pain. I've talked about that in previous sermons. Go back and listen to the sermon that I preached after she was taken away if you want to know my thoughts on that. I think evil is the result of a broken system, dark spiritual forces, and human free will. But I do believe that rescue and healing come from God. And often it seems like he is waiting to bring rescue long after I think he should. In the Lord of the Rings, um, Gandalf the wizard, he shows up at the party in the first movie or the first book. And um, Frodo's like, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Oftentimes it feels like God is Sometimes it feels like God's timing sucks. And I grew up in churches that said stuff like, God is always on time. And that sounds real nice when you're not experiencing any pain. You don't know anyone that's suffering and you're not waiting on anything. God's timing seems fine when you have everything you need. But when you have, you're missing something and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And it seems way past the deadline. It does not seem like his timing is right. They would say things like, he has perfect timing, he's never early, never late, God's never in a hurry, he's always on time, which sounds like a great little cheesy Sunday school line, but tell that to someone suffering. Tell that to this man from the synagogue whose daughter just died. Tell that to this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Tell that to me. Just a few weeks ago as I lay on my living room floor and made my carpet wet with my tears. Now, what I am beginning to believe about God is this. I, I originally wrote, I believe this about God, and I was like, that's not completely honest with you. And if anything, I try to be honest about where I am. Um, and this is what I am beginning to believe about God. God is always waiting to do the best possible good for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Let me just say that again. I'm beginning to believe that God waits to do the best possible good that's going to have the impact for the most possible people that's going to have the, um, it's going to last for the longest possible time. In our fallen world, his timing is designed to maximize good in multiple stories in order to have the longest lasting effect in our lives and in our world. And that means sometimes it feels like he is very late in my story because my story is not isolated from other people's stories. Our stories are interwoven with other people's stories. We're all a part of his big story. And none of our stories fails to connect to someone else's story. And so sometimes he seems like he's waiting too long because your story touches more people than just you. Now, that can feel really cheap in the middle of your pain. And if someone had come to me on my living room floor and they said, hey, Alex, get up. In fact, a few, I had a few pastor friends that pretty much did this. And they're like, God's going to use this. His timing's right. Just get up off the floor and stop crying. That's going to feel really cheap. There's a place to grieve and feel your loss and sit in your pain. 
And I know that sometimes good theological answers are not sufficient in the midst of pain. I know that. But I've come to believe, or I'm coming to believe, that God waits to do the best possible good to have the impact for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Now, if you had told me that on the floor, I would have said that was a cheap answer, but I'm beginning to believe it. With a little hindsight, I'm beginning to believe it is true. See, God isn't just worried about mine and Darby's story. He's not just worried about our daughter's story. He's worried about her birth family's story. He, he's worried about our social worker's story. He's worried about your story as you hear my story. He's worried about our co-worker stories who are hearing our story as we live it out. We waited 45 days for her to come back, believing that all hope was lost, believing our daughter was dead to us, and Jesus whispered, the dream isn't dead, it's only sleeping, let me resurrect it. Jesus, before the cross, himself wondered, is there an easier path? Why am I going down this <coughs> Why am I going down this path? Isn't there a different direction? Couldn't I avoid pain and suffering? And he begs his father in the garden, can I avoid drinking from the cup? Is there another way? If Jesus questioned the path he was on, I think it's okay for us to question the path we're on. And be like, why is this so painful? Why is there so much suffering? Couldn't you take me in a different direction? Isn't there a bypass to get around this? Every time I drive through Atlanta, I'm like, I should have taken the bypass. I hate Atlanta traffic. Like, take me through Philly any day, just not Atlanta. They have no public transit. So everybody's just on the road. There's like a 40-lane highway, and it's all backed up with cars. And I hate it. I wanted to go on the bypass. And a lot of times in life, it feels like we're stuck in Atlanta traffic, and we're like, why am I here? Why isn't there a bypass? If Jesus asks that, it's okay for us to, to. It's okay for us to question. It's okay for us to wonder if there's a plot to this story we're in, or if we're just a punchline. Now, Jesus, in this story, he looks at the mourners and he says, it isn't the time to mourn, but to celebrate. And the dead girl got up and the bleeding woman stood up. And after tears beyond count and pain behold measure, pain beyond measure, we hold our little girl again. I literally was holding her before I came up here. And I was just thinking, thank you. Like, worship is different when you're holding a miracle. The miraculous king is still working today. The king that raised that little girl, the king that stopped the bleeding and raised that woman up, that king is still working today. He's still healing. He's still helping. There is a plot. We're not a punchline. Now, we have a little framed sign that hung for years in the empty nursery where our daughter now sleeps. It says, he is working in the waiting. I hate that sign. I'm just going to tell you. I have almost thrown that sign away so many times. Many times when we were waiting year after year after year after rejection after rejection after rejection after loss after loss after loss, I would go in there and I would see that sign and I'd close the door on the nursery. I just couldn't even look at it. I despised it. Like many times I literally took it off the wall because I was like, I'm going to throw it away and I won't tell Darby and it would just be gone. But I would put it back on the wall. And what I found is just because you don't see him working, just because he isn't working on what you want him to be working on, doesn't mean he isn't working to bring about the best possible good for the most possible people for the longest possible time. 
why did we go down such a wretched, treacherous, difficult road? And so many other people seem like to have it so easy. I mean, it's like some people, they've got seven kids over here, and they're like, oh man, we had to wait almost a month to get pregnant, it's so hard. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what are you talking about? I don't know why I had to walk down this path, but I would know that I would walk down it a million times more to be this little girl's dad. I think sometimes in a fallen world, some gardens can only grow from our tears. In my theology of suffering, I don't think God causes suffering, but I am convinced that he will never waste it when he comes. He never allows us to wait without using the waiting. He never allows us to hurt without using the hurt. In Psalms 56, 8, it says this, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your journal. You heard it here first. God is a journaler. So be like God, journal, right? Kidding, uh, kidding aside. I was trying to, it was a heavy moment, and I thought a joke would help, but it didn't. So sorry. <laughs> the poet in Psalms, like, did you catch this? First of all, notice what he says. You collect my tears in your bottle. You record my pain in your journal. God personalizes our pain. He personalizes our sorrow. Your pain isn't just your... God's not just like watching you on a big TV screen. He's like, hmm, their life's rough. And he's like eating popcorn. He's like, man, but it's a, it's a nail biter. I can't wait to see how it turns out. God takes your pain and he says, it's my pain now. He puts your pain in his journal. He puts your tears in his bottle. They're his. He's going through your pain with you. He's not just an outside observer. He's experiencing it with you. The poet in Psalms is saying God sees our sorrows. Notice what um, Jesus said back here. Uh, sorry. Flipping back. Uh, in when the woman says, if only I touch I, her, his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turns and sees her. And he says, take heart, daughter. We have a God who sees us. Nothing is missed. He's deeply invested in your well-being. I'm obsessed with my daughter, and I'd fight a bear for her. Literally, like if a bear broke through the wall and the sky was in the way, I'd go and just beat that bear. Like, I would die fighting that bear. I just love her so much, and I would do anything for her to protect her and keep her safe and make sure she is well. But as much as I love her, it's nothing compared to how much our Heavenly Father loves you and cares about you. He's more obsessed with you than I am obsessed with my daughter. And believe me, I'm obsessed a lot. Like it's, it's a dangerous level of obsession, right? God's even more obsessed with you. He journals about you. Every time you tear, cry, he doesn't miss a tear. God's ultimate objective is for us to be with him, to be like him. And there's a long tradition in church history that people become like Christ, they find spiritual growth, they find new depth in their moments of waiting and moments of pain. We sometimes call these gut-wrenching moments of life the dark night of the soul. The term comes from a poem from a Spanish mystic and poet, John of the Cross. He was a 16th century priest. Here's a historian describing the condition under which John wrote his famous poem, which coined this phrase, the dark night of the soul. This is from a historian. In 1577, when St. John of the Cross was 35 years old, he was abducted by his own monastic brothers for his attempts to reform the corruption in the church, and he was incarcerated for nine months in a monastery in Toledo, Spain. 
His prison cell was a stone room barely large enough for his body. It had formerly been a latrine. His single robe rotted from his body in the fetid heat of summer, and in winter he shivered in the rags that remained. Several times a week, the brothers brought him out to be flogged while they enjoyed their midday meal. Otherwise, he sat in the darkness, tracking the stars through a single small window high up on the wall of his cell. Doubt began to infiltrate his psyche. And though he clung to the life raft of faith, he, it began to disintegrate in his hands, and he drifted into despair. Like Jonah in the belly of the fierce fish, the imprisoned friar found himself suspended in the void. He was unable to move towards any kind of hopeful future. He was unable to move backwards towards the innocent idealism that had led to his being swallowed up in this terrible emptiness. It was painful enough for him to wonder if God had given up on him. But the true agony descended when he began to find himself giving up on God. At last, he simply ran out of energy. He let himself down in the arms of radical unknowingness, which is where the transmutation of the lead of his agony began to unfold into the gold of mystical poetry. I, I just want to repeat this one line because I think I've been here. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're watching online. You're here. He was unable to move toward any kind of hopeful future. He was unable to move backwards towards the innocent idealism that had led to him being swallowed up by this terrible emptiness. It was painful enough for him to wonder if God had given up on him, but the true agony descended when he began to find himself giving up on God. Maybe that's how you feel today. If you had asked me in March, if you had read that to me, I would have said that's exactly how I feel when we lost our girl. But it was when John of the Cross felt this, that he wrote his poem called Dark Night of the Soul. Something beautiful came out of the waiting and the pain. And for hundreds of years, Christians have read his writings and found hope in despair. Something beautiful can come from your darkness just like it came from his. It can give hope to others languishing in the dark just like he gives hope to people now hundreds of years after his death. When our loved ones die, when our dreams die, Jesus says, take heart, my daughter, take heart, my son. What looks like death is only sleep, and I can wake the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you hear us when we pray, that you're with us when we're desperate, that you don't miss a single pain or painful moment in our lives. And when we wait, as much as it feels like nothing is happening and you're ignoring us and heaven is silent, we know that you are working. And Lord, I'm beginning to believe that you are always trying to do the best possible good for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Will you help all of us to begin to believe that? Will you restore our faith and our hope in you? Will you remind us that you are good? Will you be our bedrock when we hit rock bottom? God, we know that not every story will have a happy ending this side of the kingdom. Just say.